Reading from Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. After the fall of the Soviet Union, I was privileged to lecture in Riga for the Lutheran Church. Most of the participants in the seminar were between the ages of 25 and 35. This meant that all of their education had been in the communist state system, which was determined to indoctrinate them into atheism. I asked one of the young women how she came to faith. Was there a church in your village, I asked. No, the communists closed all of them, she replied. Did some saintly grandmother instruct you in the ways of God? No, all the members of my family were atheists. Did you have secret home Bible studies, or was there an underground church in your area? No, none of that, came the answer. So what happened? She told me the following story. At funerals, we were allowed to recite the Lord's Prayer. As a young child, I heard those strange words and had no idea who we were talking to, what the words meant, where they came from, or why we were reciting them. When freedom came at last, I had the opportunity to search for their meaning. When you are in total darkness, the tiniest point of light is very bright. For me, the Lord's Prayer was that point of light. By the time I found its meaning, I was a Christian. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. We're two friends having casual conversation about the things of eternity. We welcome you into that conversation. Corey, I'm enjoying your classes at Colburn Road. If you guys want supplements to some of the things we talk about, you can go to YouTube, Restore Gospel Podcast, and find out those videos. A lot of the things we've been talking about, you've been really, uh, you've really made a a great um, point for completely out of context, COOC, and and what it means to be part of that kind of group. And that's taking the scriptures and, and pulling out one scripture here and there and extracting it and then building your whole uh, philosophy and life's work around that scripture. And so that's that's dangerous. Um, you've made it, you've made the point that when you read around the scripture and you back up sometimes chapters, sometimes multiple chapters, and you get it in context, that the meaning then is more full. It's it's uh, easier to grasp the intention and truth. And, and that's what we're all after is truth. We want to know God as he is, as he truly is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been reading a book called uh, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and I don't, I don't even remember. I stumbled across it looking for something else, and I started reading the reviews, and it was fascinating. So there's this man named Kenneth Bailey who spent 60 years in the Middle East um, teaching Christianity, and he realized that not only uh, do we have uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament and then the Dead Sea Scrolls, but that there's a whole uh, group of literature that has been recorded since the time of Jesus in what he calls the forgotten Christians. There's over 10 million Christians uh, in the Middle East that trace their roots back to the day of Pentecost where there was uh, speaking in tongues and, and people were speaking in all different languages. And they say that Peter, Peter spoke in Arabic and they have... Uh, records of the Gospels, they've recorded uh, literature, 
and he's found it fascinating through their eyes because that was the original culture there that not just Greek, but that's the original language that they uh, recorded. Um, and so he studied with them some of their writings and, and it gives a fresh, he spent his life work uh, meshing that together with our uh, Western Christianity and it gives some interesting insights into some of the scriptures. And so last week, um, well, we've talked about the robe of righteousness and being clothed in purity when we finally come to that day that we stand before God. And we're, we either have on that robe of righteousness and that purity that we're clothed in, or we stand naked before him with all of our sins. And that's the, the two outcomes we're uh, we're gonna. I wanted to talk just a little bit about how the Lord's Prayer and the parable of the prodigal son, where uh, he puts on this robe over the son that comes back home, kind of ties together. Uh, when I spoke a couple of weeks ago at Coburn, I brought up the the parable of the prodigal son, and then I came home and I was reading this book, and he talks about that parable through their culture as the most poignant. Um, word picture of who our Father in Heaven is out of all the parables because that's one where the behavior actually acts contradictory to their culture mm. by the Father. And so maybe we talk a little bit about that today, and that's what's on my mind. I'm sure you've, you've got some things, but what do you think? You know, when you're talking about <clears throat> um, this whole realm of writings that may exist, um I, a couple things. First of all, is that you know, in in the Gentile Christian world, we've got a book called the Bible, and over decades and centuries prior to our generation, books were kind of added and taken out, and and there was a group of people, and we don't know their names. We don't. More importantly, we don't know their intentions, but who made decisions on what books got to stay and what books got pulled out. And, um, you know, it's interesting because we've been given to accept that the Bible, the way it is, is the only authority on earth, you know, discounting the Book of Mormon and other scriptures. But what's interesting is the Book of Mormon says this in the second book of Nephi, chapter 12, verse 70, in the RLDS version. He says, um, I will speak to the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. You know, he's speaking in Nephi about the words he was writing. And then he says, and I shall also speak unto all the nations of the earth, and they shall write it. Now, that's an interesting phrase when you consider, if he means all nations, like, you know, every country right now, you know, okay, Liechtenstein's this little <laughs> country 16 right. miles wide, right? Um, maybe it meant all the nations of Israel. Who knows what it meant? But the whole point is that God's words were not just limited to as far as the eye could see around Jerusalem, which is what we're led to believe is the only place God can could have spoken. That's right. what kind of the popular notion is. But one other thing, I don't know if this is true or not, but, um, well, two, two things real quick. I, I do enjoy this book, The Lost Books of the Bible, where it it goes, and these books are documented. They've been printed before. They just weren't included in the canon of Scripture. And there's many, many testimonies and, and things that everyone agreed, no, this was true. Like, there's a testimony of Joseph about how his brothers treated him and yet his love for them still, and it's in these lost books. Uh, it's just it, it's it. Some of it really comes with the spirit. I think some of it you you see where men have maybe cr corrupted or manipulated some of the words, but um, it's just fascinating to me. So, 
at the same time, um, this other uh, – I lost some train of thought. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> it's, your, <laughs> well, it's your podcast. There was something else I was going to say. It'll come back. Well, I'll, I'll read you a, a couple of things. This is oh, right oh I know what it was. Yeah, real quick. Ahead. All right, real quick. So I just saw a YouTube video the other day, which – and this is the part. I'm not sure if it's true or not. But um, so That's what happens after the women leave on the Sabbath? <laughs> you like that one? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I fell asleep laughing last night. <laughs> That's my dark side. Okay. Uh, well, I may so, link that just for fun. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, so this uh, inside joke, you know, um, I saw a YouTube video, and what this was was similar to what you're saying, though. You know, we don't have any real record from the time of Jesus being eight, uh, 12 years old to when they couldn't find him in the parade, you know, going back home, and then they find Jesus at the temple teaching the uh, rabbis. Till he's 30. And the only thing we have is Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. And what's interesting about that, I just saw this YouTube video the other day. It was really interesting where people, if you go into like Pakistan, I mean, now we're getting ways out of Jerusalem. You know, Jesus went to Egypt, we know, when he was a baby. But they have these records of this young boy who came among them. And we're not talking about Muhammad or something like that. This who did a bunch of miracles and and all their evidence lines up with that. If if it wasn't Jesus, it was someone just like him. But the the point they were making is that in that eighteen years, that's really not recorded in the Bible. Other people in the earth had encountered someone mm. who sounded a lot like Jesus, and they were writing about him. So anyhow, that's all that was. Well, I I just love with uh, as as technology and everything has increased, that the knowledge is increasing so fast, and it's so easily available. Uh, you don't have to go to a library and look up the Dewey Decimal System. <laughs> if, like, I think that's right. Right. I mean, you just <clears throat> you just go to Amazon, and there's all of these books, and people are self publishing their own personal love and study their life's work, and it's available for everyone. It's mm-hmm. it's a fascinating time to continually renew your mind yeah. with the Word of God and and all good books, and, and let the Holy Spirit guide you what's true and what's not true. But uh, leading up to the prodigal son and the Lord's Prayer, which he ties both of these together in a beautiful way, I hope, hope we can bring that out today, but he, he says there's more than 10 million Arabic-speaking Christians in the Middle East that trace their origins to the day of Pentecost. Mm. And um, some of them were were from Arabia, which Arabia is just southeast of Israel and Jerusalem. It's called Saudi Arabia today. Peter went into part of that and preached. Paul, sorry, Paul went into part of that area and preached. Uh, But they were were there on the day of Pentecost, and it says that... um, there were actually two bishops from Baran who were on the Council of Nicaea, and I believe isn't that who compiled the Bible together? Yeah, yeah. Um, so from 980, he says, to 1400 AD, five centuries of the highest quality Christian scholarship available was written by these people that um, hmm. that had passed down this knowledge uh, in their language, and so. The writing at the time of Jesus was Hebrew, correct? Yeah, sort or, of. There's a there's some story behind that, but go ahead. yeah. But so, but they spoke. They spoke Aramaic. Aramaic, right? You're right, right. Yeah, the scriptures were written in Hebrew language, and right, but Aramaic was the the voice. Of the and be, <clears throat> it's when when the disciples told asked Jesus, Lord, uh, teach us to pray. He spoke in. Aramaic, mm-hmm. Abba, yes, and that that one 
uh, detail uh, this man ties into uh, in a very interesting way what that what that meant, and we'll get to it. I found that fascinating because he told him, "Don't pray as the Gentiles pray with their vain words and their much speaking." Mm. He he told him to pray this way, Abba. Uh, the Gentiles, it's it's it's. Uh, let's see if I have an example here. They like to address one another um, with all kinds of uh, titles. Well, first of all, reading from Ecclesiastics in the Old Testament, he says the teacher or the preacher touches on this topic in offering advice on how to pray when entering the house of God. And he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before, the, before God, for God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let their words be few. And in this day and age, we're just drown, drowning in words mm-hmm. and billboards and advertising and people texting and posting on Facebook. And there's all these words. And they understood in that culture that when you come before God, you're just this earthly being. And he is this God in heaven. And you come before him with that reverence. And sometimes it seems that that included a long period of silence. The, the culture at that time I read was uh, the Pharisees. Sometimes when they would come to do the prayers, they had like 18 prayers they would recite. Wow. And it's a, it's a Jewish word, but it, it meant standing. They would stand there and recite these prayers. And he shows a similarity between the Lord's Prayer and the structure and these prayers that the Pharisees would use in the temple, but but tempered down a little bit. But sometimes, as he, it was said, the most pious ones would actually stand there for an hour and let their minds and heart be centered on God before they started to pray. Isn't that interesting? That's really, really interesting. That's beautiful in, in a lot of ways. And so the point was made in these writings that when Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he used very few words and gave them the instruction to, to not use vain words you know, not speak like the Gentiles with all of these uh, multiple words, but to do a very short prayer. But then on the other hand, Jesus, it's recorded that Jesus prayed all night. Right. And so he talked about that. Was that part of that prayer? Was that just Jesus being silent and allowing the Spirit to be with him and just in the spirit of prayer from the Father to direct him, to comfort him, you know, to teach that maybe not necessarily just talking for yeah. all of that time. And so then my mind goes back to, uh, was it Enos in the Book of Mormon? Yeah. When it says he prayed all night, and we wonder, well, how could you talk all night to God? I wonder if part of that was being silent and reverence and just having your mind drawn out that you're here on the earth and this God is in heaven and he's, he's the source of everything, reflecting on maybe words that you've heard in the scriptures or been taught. Mm. but maybe not speaking all the time. You know, years ago when we lived in the country, I had a little prayer spot that was my own little place in the in the field back behind our house, and I'd, I'd go out there, and no one ever really told me to do it or whatever, but I just felt like, you know, I, I wanted to pray, but I think my prayers had always been kind of like ordering fast <clears> food, you know, hey, Lord, give me this, give me that, give me that, and, you know, and then you, you're done. And so mm-hmm. in, in that time period in my life, I started, it was it was hard. You know what I found for me, anyhow, is it was hard to keep my mind in a prayer for very long. Like, if I, 
if I prayed for a few minutes, that was really good, but my mind would start wandering right. off, you know, the, the show I watched last night or whatever, right? You know, I feel like, like, yeah, that's, that's getting worse for me the older I get. Yeah, I like. yeah, yeah. So what, what it was interesting is at some point in that life and in that time of my life, you know, I would actually kind of think, okay, I'm going to see if I can keep my mind in this for like 10 minutes or whatever. And then you know, the time frame wasn't the point. But after a while, I remember I became better at, um, I'd wander out there at night and kind of watch the stars first and then just try to pray. But just try to praise God first without asking for anything. That was really a, a new thing for me to just, just sometimes just like, Lord, I just want to be with you. I don't have an agenda. I, I just want to be with you. But the point I wanted to make from all that was at some point in time, I started realizing that the most fulfilling time was when I would pray in those times and then just sit there and just listen. It's like, that's what meditation, the word meditation in scripture, I think really points to is like, you know, you, you can offer petitions to God certainly, and you can ask for things you stand in need of. He, he commands that he wants that, but yet to then just kind of bask in the spirit, so to speak, and just stay there and just don't, don't let your mind go to anything, but just listen. And I always felt like in those moments, that's when I would get answers to prayers. And sometimes prayers were about things I was working on at work that were perplexing and needed direction. And, you know, it's like the inspiration, the answers for those things would come in that time when I was just being quiet afterwards. And, it, yeah. it brings me back to everything you've talked about, about taking things out of context and, you know, what was the culture they were set in. Remember back when we were talking about prayer and supplication yeah. and how it was separated and, yeah. and supplicate mean, meant to like earnestly ask? Right, right. So it makes you wonder if <clears throat> there's a part of this, what we call prayer, that is supplication, where you are asking the Father to give you your daily bread, to give you know, to attend to your needs. You're recognizing where you're weak and what you need help with. But then the prayer part maybe is, we when we say you know, say your prayers before you go to bed to your children, it's this action that you go in and you speak and then you go to bed. But perhaps there is more of a, a drawing out your mind, a listening, a meditation mm-hmm. type aspect to that otherwise why why would why would it separate those two words because it seems like our yeah. prayer services is all supplication we're earnestly asking to be healed for here or to help mm-hmm. so and so or to give us this um, but but I don't know that there's a quote prayer time or a there's not a lot of time where we just draw our minds and hearts out to God we're yeah. either singing or listening to scripture or mm-hmm. and um there's a couple people in our congregation that like to have a bit of silence after a, the word's been spoken and to just think about it. But it seems like, well, there's, so when the Jews, let's, let's go back to the, the history of what we know about prayer in the Old Testament. The Jews knew how to pray, and, and it says like the pious, like Daniel, remember Daniel in the Old Testament? Oh, yeah. He would pray three times a day, like sunrise, three o'clock in the afternoon, and at sundown. And remember he... He didn't he get in trouble for it because they saw him in the window praying or right, whatever, and they right. said, quit praying to your God or you're going to... Yeah, they set him up because they made the law. Anyone who doesn't pray to this God and pray somewhere else, yeah, they, they were trying to nail him, and he 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 let him, he walked into the trap purposefully so mm-hmm. he could show God's power. <clears throat> so when the disciples come to Jesus and ask him to teach us to pray, what, what goes through your mind? I, I, I wonder if they're thinking about all of this culture and these specific prayer times and maybe... Maybe it says nowhere in the Gospels is it recorded that Jesus adhered to these three times of prayer during the day. Yeah. So I wonder if these followers that are following him around, and maybe they see him pray at all different times, or maybe they, 
They see him go off at night and spend all night in prayer. I wonder if they're wondering about their culture and their traditions and saying, hey, what's what's the deal with this prayer? I mean, it's a part of your life. You know, our traditions maybe are to to stand in the synagogue and pray these prayers or to pray three times a day. Te- teach us. Teach us what you say about this. Yeah, it's interesting, that, that context in Luke 11. Uh, it's probably the same in the King James. I just have the inspired version here. Verse 1, Luke 11, verse 1, just says, And it came to pass as he, this is Jesus, was praying in a certain place. When he ceased, one of the disciples said unto him, Lord, you know, you can emphasize this, and it says, teach us to pray, but it probably was, teach us to pray. You know, it's like, hey, right. we, we want to know what, what what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. What's going on with you there? Teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So, you know, there was something different about communicating with God, exactly like you say. We can learn it of men, but I think when we learn it of God, it's a totally different experience. Yeah, the the form of the Jewish daily prayer began with the recital of, of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, which <clears throat> we've talked about that before, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Yeah. And then it, and then came a series of 18 prayers called Amidah, which meant standing because they were prayed while standing. And um, they were also referred to simply as the Tefillah, the prayers and they were used in some form during during Jesus's lifetime, and it says they, that they remain in use even today in the synagogues. Hmm. So that was the the culture, and that was what was going on. And that's when you know Jesus says says to them, "When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words." Hmm. And that's that was probably contrary even to their own culture um, because Jesus prayed a pretty quick prayer, the Lord's Prayer. We learned that back in the day when I played football, of course, I, our, my coach was a Sunday school teacher early on, so the uh, we all knelt and said the Lord's Prayer together, but everybody on the team, regardless of your faith, knew the Lord's Prayer, and we'd pray it out loud, and there was no pushback or anything. It's just what you did, but that's one of those prayers you learn you know, that most every Christian can mm-hmm. recite. Right, right. Um, but he poses this question, was there just some long periods of spirit-filled uh, communion? But more about the prayers in the synagogue. Uh, Ju- Judaism and Islam both have a sacred language. Christianity doesn't. And this is, he says, this is a huge, mm. a huge uh, significance. So the, the traditional synagogue prayers would open up a lot of times like the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, um, the blessed one, the holy one, the builder of Jerusalem, the mighty one, the redeemer of Israel, the gracious one. And and when Jesus shows them how to pray, he says, our Father. Mm-hmm. He was bringing that into this personal, he's the Father. He didn't say my Father, but our Father. The whole human nation, the whole human race mm-hmm. approaches their creator as our Father. And not not the Father of somebody else, not the Father of somewhere else. And and Islam would say that that's uh, blasphemous because they say the one who is merciful, the one who is gracious, the one who is, they, they describe him 
in that way, but they won't mm-hmm. ever call him in any oh. type of personal, like you're making him into our image. Father oh, wow. is an earthly thing. That's interesting. And so that was a very, very different uh, model for, I guess, for these people in that, in that culture to hear. Hmm. That's really interesting. You know, it's interesting too, that in that relatively short Lord's prayer that he gives, he never does use a, an I or a me. It's like, give us our daily bread, forgive those who trespass against us. It's interesting how in the context of his prayer, everything he says is collective, you know, um, it, it wasn't just about I and me. Um, I remember reading this in, in a Hebrew book that uh, this idea of, hey, we're in this together, I guess is what comes out in the Lord's Prayer to me, is that it's this collective recognizing that we're all dependent on him, and even though it's a personal relationship with all of us, and we and I, and I don't suggest that you know somehow we can't say me and I and the things I need personally. Of course, <clears throat> that's okay, but what um, is interesting is in the Lord's Prayer how it's all about everyone in the Hebrew culture, it was forbidden if you were like walking down a road and there was a, and you could see in the distance a fire, like something was on fire and it could have been someone's property, their barn or their home or something like that, Mm. that you were forbidden to pray. Oh Lord, I pray that's not my home. And the reason that was forbidden was because it was somebody's home and that person's property in their life was just as important as yours. And I guess this kind of comes out when, when he says, teach us to pray. He was getting, I guess, this idea across too, that we're, we're all in sin. We all need our father's blessing. We all need, you know, our daily bread. Yeah. Yeah. Forgiveness. When you address God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're praying a prayer of a particular people with a, a particular history and, and he says Christians are adopted into that great family. We're all, we talked about the family of God and how inclusive it is. There's no racial or, or economical lines. It's it's the family of God. Uh, and so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray Abba, he picked that word out of all of these ways to refer mm-hmm. to God as our Father. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's talking about this vision, this family um, of faith that went beyond the community or your cultural heritage or what God did to your ancestors, but it brings them right into the, the here and now that every human, every tribe or nation has a father and it's our father and we're all to address him equally. It's interesting that, you know, that point you make about the, the fact that in other religions, you're, you're not allowed, you're, you're forbidden to, make it a personal, you know, mm-hmm. close relationship like that. Well, what if you were standing next to, like I'm standing next to you, and you say, oh, God, the father of your great-grandfather and the father of my people from Europe and the father of yeah. of my grandpa and my dad, yeah. I come to you, and it would alienate, like, well, hey, what about me, Corey? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. And you're like, no, he's the God of my fathers. Uh-huh. It's, and so that that shifts into, like, there's no insiders or outsiders. There's just our our father. Hmm. So, you know, that culture was really focused on God and his deliverance. That You know, the, the, the best, best story was the deliverance through the waters of Moses and all of the great things that he'd done for us. And he's saying, and no, it's not, hmm. it's not just our group of people, but hmm. all people. 
So has, has reading this, has this changed your prayers or your thoughts about prayer and your own personal walk? Well, the parable of the prodigal son has is working on my heart. I'm still, you know, I, st- I still struggle with uh, the culture and traditions I've been grown up with, but the only way to change that is to continually read the Word of God, and and he says to renew your mind daily and, and feast upon the Word. I think the more I read and meditate on this picture that Jesus wants us to understand of who he is, um, and and leave the any other traditions that are outside of the word of God is is a lifelong journey. But yeah, uh, the more I see different works coming forth and different people. I mean, to 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 speak what you you say in a sermon about the prodigal son and believe it, and yet knowing that you have a history that kind of speaks contrary to that, and then to to go and find other sources that say this is what we believe, and this is what this meant to our culture, and it, it, it is that. It is this wonderful story. Yeah. Um, well, so, Abba Father, uh, the, the important part of this is this, um, the way that Jesus was portraying that, that he is our Father, and this man then talks about and ties this Lord's Prayer into the um, parable of the prodigal son. And, and he said that to understand Jesus, the best way, defining the word father, the use that he intends to make of it. What, what does that mean to them, the father in that culture, a father, by using that word? What, what, what did that mean to that culture at that time? Mm. And he he then goes forth and breaks the, um, oh, the norm or the expectations of how a father would act uh, through parables. And, you know, we talked earlier about how the Hebrew word for God had a male and a feminine um, attributes to it. And he talks about that. And I never thought about it in this way because he addresses, you know, especially where we're at in culture today, this patriarchy is all evil and, you know, oh, yeah. men were uh, mean to women and women were uh, placed under, you know, the rule of men. And, and so we need to throw out the Bible because it was all based on this patriarchy. And and yet he, he used a couple of examples in here how God, <clears throat> uh, the, there is a beauty to the feminine side and to, to the female side that God created man, male and female I never thought about this before, but Jesus, as describing the Father, he describes it in a feminine way. He says, as a as a hen gathers her chickens. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And he mentions that like four times to the Nephites. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. he broke the bounds of the human patriarchy. He uh, he describes it as a woman who's lost her coin. Or or as a woman who has a breastfeeding child. He says, uh, they she might forget, but I won't forget. You know, it's like yeah. interesting. What yeah. about this? The the most important one, being born again, being born of the oh, spirit, wow. birth. Yeah, birth. Wow, wow. That's really interesting. When you look at all those feminine characteristics that he compares himself to well. Yeah. So so in this parable of the um of the prodigal son, he he goes against the norm. The the actions of the father is against the norms of that day. Mm-hmm. And so Let's let's talk about that for just a second. I'm enjoying it. So, Jesus in Jesus's world, um, like we said, there was no 
Christian prayer language. Uh, the public reading of the Bible in his day was only in Hebrew, and the prayers were all offered in the Hebrew language. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus took this huge step of endorsing Aramaic as an acceptable language for prayer and worship, then he opened up the door for the New Testament, not not just to be written in Greek or Hebrew, but translated into other languages. And so if there's no sacred language, there's no sacred culture. And all of this was this outgrowth of Jesus. I, I, it's oh, hard for us to wrap our mind around because we right. speak in English, but it would almost be like, Corey, teach me to pray. And you started speaking in Spanish. <laughs> it's yeah, like, right. well, is this because people don't realize that there's other... Uh, the author says, like, my, my grandmother was convinced that when Jesus was here on the earth and the disciples, they all spoke in the king's English. Yeah. And people never think about, you know, realize that, no, he was speaking, the prayers were in Hebrew, and that just blows your mind away because we just think of God speaking in English mm-hmm. to us. And other cultures, uh, it's funny because other cultures are adamant about that, that, no, he's spoken this or he's spoken that word. So he pulls this word. So if you said, Corey, teach me to pray, and you said, uh, you know, Dios, or you use this uh, word for right. the Father that was in another language, my first, my first thought would be, why? What? Yeah, right. Why? Yeah. What's wrong with the word God? Right. <laughs> or, you know, even in, um, in our times, some more proper speech, I guess, can be used where I'll often hear people who would never use the word thee or thine in conversation, but they'll use it in a prayer you know, uh, to refer to God because, you know, and maybe that just comes from the old English, which just seemed a little more formal, and that's how we should be with God. Um, I remember being at church camp once where there, it was like a weekend retreat where it was like junior high and senior high, and, you know, everyone's kind of figuring themselves out, and maybe one of these kids would just do it and it'd be cool, but it stuck with me because um, I remember he would like to pray at campfires and stuff, but, and he was a senior high kid and I was a junior high kid. So, you know, you always kind of looked up to him, but I remember his prayer was always so casual, but not disrespectful. It's like, Hey God, how you doing today? You know, I've really had a hard day. And he's just kind of like talking to a friend all the time. And it was never um, this formal approach. And I, and I've, I kind of balanced that in my life where it's like, I realized, you no, know, Jesus's own words, you know, our father or this Abba, he, it was the personal father. It mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, someone separate on the other side of the universe who you really couldn't knock on his door and disturb him, right? You know, it was like, no, he wanted it to be close. But at the same time, you know, I consider this whole aspect of the the fear of the Lord. And like you said, which really balances this thought, people who would not begin their prayer for an hour because they they wanted yeah. to demonstrate that respect. So there's a balance of both both things. Absolutely. Yeah. He brought that out. Uh, you know, he said, you know, we should we should learn well from the the Islam that they find it idolatry to even call God Father on one hand because it's they think it's irreverent placing him as a human form. But he said, but on the other hand, that 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 pausing to recognize he's in heaven and we're here on earth. And we, you know, the Christians take that personal level to a whole, you know, daddy in heaven and stuff yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. where it really becomes can become irreverent and you are addressing the creator. The creator yeah. But the Creator also told us our Father. And so it's important to recognize what that word Father meant. And actually, that's our word. That's not their word. Their word was Abba. Uh, that's interesting. That's And, you know, it, it's good what you just pointed out, that 
he sets the boundaries, you know, with certain reasons. And we have to kind of understand what those boundaries are too. Right. And so it's recorded, I think, three times in the Bible where it says, Abba the Father, mm-hmm. or, or, um, our, our, uh, it, it uses the, the, he, the Aramaic word Abba. They leave that in there and then they use the Greek word, which is translated to our, the Father. But they said they left that in there for a purpose because that Aramaic word of Abba carried so much weight. Mm. And uh, he was talking to a group of people and, and trying to teach to them and over there in the Middle East. And he was trying to talk to them about Abba and what it meant. And he said there was a lady in the back that was kind of laughing. And, you know, he saw some murmuring in the back of this group that he was teaching. And and uh, he said, Sister, what's did I say something wrong? And she, she just laughed. She goes, you know, we know the word Abba is the first word we teach our children. Mm. And so it's carried through to modern day that that, that one word uh, it, it really um, represents a culture and understanding, and it's an important word so much that even when the Greeks were, were translated into Greek, they still use that word and then and then define what, what it meant. So mm. You know, it's interesting, too, that... I love learning the Hebrew meanings of words in English because it adds understanding. But the person who was let go the day Jesus was chosen to be crucified was named Barabbas. But the Abba is father, and the Bar means son. And so his name literally meant the son of the father. And that could be also reinterpreted to be the child of God or the children of God, which is an interesting name for the one who got set free. Right. <laughs> yeah. When you see, I, a, we talked about that before, but every time I forgot about that. Yeah, isn't it wow. something? You know, and that so he represents us. You know, the one who was the sinner who didn't die on the cross. That was us, and the one. But um, language is so fascinating because yeah. the more you study and learn, I guess at some point it's like, well, how do you know any truth? Then you know, if if things have changed or whatever, mm-hmm. well you have all these opportunities now to just grow in deeper insight, I believe. But (laughs) this is funny. He says, uh, when he was over there in the Middle East, he says, and this is a true belief, my Armenian friends tell me that God has a very learned Armenian monk as his private secretary, and this monk (laughs) knows all the languages of the world, and when prayers from around the world arise to the throne of grace, this clever monk immediately transmates them into classical Armenian (laughs) so that God will be able to understand. I love it. Uh, yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. So, but so Jesus lived in a world where people were reading the Bible and saying their prayers only in Hebrew, and so he pulls this this word out of the culture and uses it. The word "father," uh, the Islams think the word "father" or "my father" or "our father" makes God into this human model, and so it's idolatrous. Um, and so that's a good warning for us, like we talked about. But well, that's one of the reasons why Orthodox Jews, anyhow reject Jesus as any possibility of being the Messiah because they take a a single scripture from the Old Testament that says, God is not man that he should repent. Well, that is is right. God's not like us that he makes bad decisions and, and changes his mind about things, you know. It might come across through interpretation of our language that that happens where God says, hey, I was gonna do this, but I, I didn't. But the point they pull from that is that there's no way God could ever be human flesh, so therefore Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah, right? Uh, and that's that's the connection they draw from that. But it's not it's not the intent of the scripture, I don't think. It's just the one they want to lean on uh, to to basically 
justify Jesus not couldn't have been our savior, you know, but it's not, it's not what it means. I don't think. Yeah. The, this, so this author says that the parable of the prodigal son is the parable Jesus uses to best uh, define the word father or Abba um, to use for us to understand it as he intends. And that, that story, Jesus breaks all the bounds of like the human patriarchy and, and presents this image of a father that goes beyond anything his culture uh, really expected from a human father. Um, he wasn't describing them as he knew them, but creating this brand new image of his intention to use this model of God. Um, and this author says that his starting point for that parable actually comes from Hosea 11. Oh, really? where the prophet des- describes God as a compassionate father to Israel who cries out in agony. And he says, I am God and not man, the holy one in your midst, and I will not come to destroy. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, the prior verses to that Hosea text, it presents God as this tender, loving father with a much-loved, rebellious child. Mm-hmm. And he has that right to respond in anger and punishment, but instead he chooses to respond with love. And we see this in the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son. Um, so when, when, um, when the prodigal son, when the one son goes out and says, give me your inheritance and I'm going to go out and do what I want, and he does, and he squanders it. The inspired version, I read different versions of the point where that son comes to the point that well, the inspired version says he comes to himself. Something happens inside, and, and he says, it would, I would rather be a servant in my father's house than to, to live this life I'm living right now. Yeah, yeah. I was reading out of the King James, and it's interesting how at his lowest point in life, he says he was so hungry, you know, he would have eaten the husks that the swine were eating. And I remember a man I... I re- really revered years ago in his message about the prodigal son saying, you know, all those magazines you see at the checkout stand, those are the husks, <laughs> you know, in other words, they, they feel like, you know, you, you can eat a husk. Our body isn't uh, designed to digest it. Right. But it's like the stuff of the world that doesn't feed the soul. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So he comes back to the father, of course, and the action that this father does is, the fact that he runs out to meet him and wraps his arms around him in love mm-hmm. when it was contrary to what a father would have acted like back then. Yeah. Well, and this is interesting too, because, you know, we're, we're all the prodigal. The prodigal is, I think the story is the type for our spiritual return. You know, we squander our, our lives here. And, and when he finally comes to this point where he says, I love these words where he says, I will arise. You know, this is this is the point of repentance for us when we say, no, I want to turn to God because the only way I get back to God is by coming in through this gate in this way. And when he, you know, when he thinks, hey, my father's going to be angry with me because of all the things I've squandered, the, the father shares, no, you don't realize, I thought you were dead, you know? And there's a big difference there that this whole idea that, you know, the father thought he's going to be mad at me. It's like his love outweighed any anger he could have had because of the fact that his son was alive and he came back to him. Yeah, he, the father in that parable, um, 
play, gives us this portrait of our creator whose goodness and love and forgiveness and generosity and compassion have no limits at all. Mm-hmm. They just, they, they go beyond anything that that culture provided. Yeah. Uh, you know, that would have been it. That was like, no, you, you had your inheritance. Right. Sorry, but that's, right. it was that's all it. It's gone. But it's this, gone. he went way beyond that and it was transforming the image of who our father in heaven is. Yeah. Yeah. And the other the other interesting thing to that parable that I love, and this is where it ties into the Book of Mormon, so clearly it did for me in your class uh, last week, was the older son who who was angry that the younger son came home and received this great blessing. And he talks to his father and says, I've I've done all of these, we could call it works. I've done all of these things. I have kept your commandments. I've, I've slayed, he says, I've slaved for you. Mm. I've kept your commandments. I wonder if that word has more context on how he viewed what he was doing as a slave mm. rather than a son. I've slaved for you. I've kept your commandments, and you never had a feast for me or did anything. And and the father says, "You've all, everything I have is yours. You've always been with me, but, but this you know, son was lost and and now he's found. So look at the difference. And this is, I believe, where the Book of Mormon sheds light on this. The only way the sacrifice of the Son, our Creator, um, can save us and atone for our sins is if we have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Amen. So I think this parable is a picture of what it means to have a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Well, exactly. And just the the words of it, just in... Uh, I, I'm just looking at the King James Version online here because I, I just wanted to see if there was any wording difference. But I love this in verse 17. It first says, when he came to himself, and you pointed this out, you know, every one of us has to come to this point in life where we turn our thinking around and we decide, I I, I don't want these husks anymore. I don't want to live like this one. I want to return to my father. That's Alma's experience when he says, hey, Every don't you know? Don't marvel that every one of us has to be born again. We have to make the same change, and it's just this conscious decision to choose God, you know, despite the world around us. And so, in verse eighteen, I love these words. It's just a few words, but I will arise and go to my Father. That's that's the conscious decision that we have to make. You know, we have to turn to God, and it's so beautiful because you see this whole process of this repentance is is exactly what He's doing, which is our journey. And but but what you just said about broken heart and contrite spirit. The next verse he sta- he states, "I am no more worthy to be called thy son." Is, oh. Isn't that the judgment? Isn't that the you know you've you've pointed this out last time we got together and we were talking about how there's a huge gulf that separates the wicked and the righteous, and the righteous are the ones who are broken and contrite. And he says it right here: "I'm no more worthy." That's the only thing we can do before our Father. That's what our works show, is that we realized we weren't worthy to be his child. Yeah, and that's, and that's, the, um, that's the danger of taking a word like works and twisting it in our minds to think that uh, we, we spend our life trying to make ourselves worthy, trying to prove that we're worthy. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to be really clear, because I, I think some people, when we discuss this, maybe— just from my conversations, get the wrong idea. If you truly come to yourself, if you truly recognize that uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, if you come to the realization that there's only one righteous one, and that's God, and that everybody else fails and is unworthy to be in his presence, 
if you do that and that's that and your heart has truly come to understand that through the Holy Spirit, I guarantee that your life going forward will be filled with the most wonderful works of the Spirit, the most wonderful love for all mankind, the most wonderful compassion for all mankind, and your life is going to bear so much fruit. And it might be under in stress, too. It might be under difficulty, right? But the yeah. fact is, your heart has changed, and you know that's the right thing. That's the right way to live. That's the right thing to want. And there's no more, there'll be, there's no more debating whether uh, you've done good works or not. Your whole life is, is going to be uh, filled with the Spirit of God. And so when this son comes back and meets his father, I wonder who was going to be a better servant now to the father. Who was oh, going to really? be a better son? Was it going to be the one... Here's another interesting key. The father's older son, who was always with him, started pointing out all of the good things he'd done in his life. Mm -hmm. And when he does that, it's showing that he feels like he deserves a certain reward from his father because of what he's done, because of the work that he's done. And in so doing, he's not even able to forgive his brother. He's not even able to welcome his brother back into the fold with a loving heart and with a happiness and a genuine joy that says, you're found, you're back. We're so happy. Let's rejoice because his works were getting in the way. Yeah, because he thought it was all about the things that he had done. Why should his father get happy about this kid who hadn't done all the things he had done? And that's what that culture transforms into our culture today. When we start judging Mm -hmm. one another, when we fail to recognize our brothers and sisters because of what they've done or what they've professed to believe or who they've called to the priesthood or anything like that. Mm-hmm. We, we believe our righteousness is based on our adherence to the law, on our adherence to the history, on our adherence to the patterns set before us, and it's not the righteousness of Jesus. Right. It's right. not that we've realized that we're unworthy yet. And it's like we have to see in this example that you've pointed out that God is really, really touched by a changed heart. You know, it's like mm-hmm. when when you look at just these words, it's like he came to himself. Well, well, consider first, he left the presence of his father. There's a huge parallel right there where all mankind is outside of God's presence, right? And so what does he do? He realizes his life is nothing and it's going further downhill. But then he says, he came to himself. He said, I will arise and go to my father. And he's going to say, I've sinned against you. It's interesting that he uses this word sin against his father, right? You know, but nevertheless, he says, I'm no more worthy. And then it says, and he arose and he went to his father. Isn't that the whole process for all of us? Does it say I've sinned against you and heaven? I I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. That's Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And... When we talk about, okay, let's look at a lifetime of works. This this son leaves when he's young. He goes off, and I don't know in today's culture what what we would liken this to, but he's spending his money. I don't know if he's gambling or squandering it, it says. He's, he's out with harlots, prostitutes. So imagine this son going down 24th Avenue, you know, buying liquor and, and booze and drugs and gambling and picking up hookers on the side of the street and spending his nights with him. I, I'm laughing because I heard this comedian say one time, he said, oh, man, he said, I had such a hard life. He said, I spent half my money on, what do you say, cigarettes, whiskey, and wild women, and the rest I just wasted. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so that's the... 
Mm. But that's that's very likely, right, the mindset of the of the son. And so if you look at his life up to this point when the father accepts him, what has he done in, in our eyes that we would consider good when you line up what this other son who's been with the father every day, kept his commandments, done the work that he's required of him. Yeah. If you look, and that's kind of like what we talked about, lining people up and putting your hand down the middle. You can't line people up based on what they've done. No, because none of it in the end matters eternally in, in that in that capacity. And this is this this parable, I don't know anything that points it out better, this this discussion of works or good works that this son, by all intents and purposes, had done. The younger brother had had a lifetime of evil works. Yeah. And then he comes to himself and realizes all he wants is the father. Yeah. And that's the end result for all. For all of us, when I want God above everything else, yeah, Amen, Amen. And it's like then the lifetime of evil works get wiped off the record because it's like you're back. You and know? what? And yeah. what did the father do when he ran out to meet him? Well, bring bring me a robe. Isn't that beautiful? That was your message, you know, the robe. And that's where the Book of Mormon, you know, shares it so beautifully. Hey, exactly. What what is what does the scripture say from the Book of Mormon about? Um, it's in Nephi's prayer, you know. I, he says, I'll, "I'll be encircled by a robe of righteousness," and then, and then later in the Book of Mormon, where it's talking about the difference between the the people who stand before God, uh, the ones whose sin isn't removed, it's going to be as if they were naked, and the ones whose sin is removed, it's going to be like they're given a a robe of righteousness. They are given a robe, yeah, yeah. and yeah. they're clothed with purity. So, yeah, so. I, I've learned when, when when these words are used in with this culture, you have to like bring them together. What's the pattern of speaking? When 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 robes are mentioned over and over, what are they in the Book of Mormon? What does it teach? Ties in, I think, this picture of a robe very clearly to righteousness of Christ and and being judged either with that robe on or being naked and feeling feeling the full mm. weight of your sin. Mm. Mm. So here's this son who's had a lifetimes of evil works, it appears, up to this point, comes back to the Father and says, I just want you. I just want to be with you. I see what, what the alternative is, and you were, you were right all along. I just want to be with you. He says, here's your robe of righteousness. Wow. doesn't matter how much you've done or how much wickedness you've done. You've, by the miracle of the Holy Spirit, you recognize that I am the way, and I'm going to put this robe on you, and you're welcomed back into my family, back mm-hmm. into my house. And yet the boy, that the older brother that was supposedly so good and kept all the commandments never realized the great gift of the father wow. when he says, I, every, you were with me all the time, mm. but you don't cherish that. Wow. You don't cherish that. That's, that, was, that is the gift, just me. You were in my presence. Everything I have is yours. That is the gift. And yeah. yet you sit here angry based on your own righteousness that you think you deserve better than someone else who... Yeah. has come to recognize that I am the way. You know, I realized recently, and in, in we talk about our reward in heaven, our reward is that the sin is removed, right? And we get to be with the Father again because that's the problem is that we have no way to remove our sin, and it's only because of him that it can be removed. And that is the biggest reward because that grants eternal life, real yeah. life, real life back with him. The culture... Um, Apparently, it's you know, there's pushback on this fact that well, we throw this whole whole image of God out because He's presented as a Father, um, just just to to give another scripture in Deut- Deuteronomy, 
you were unmindful of the rock that begot you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Mm. If God gives birth and God acts like a female, I mean, there's there's the image of God both both sides. Mm. We can't anyway. That so that's where uh, that's where my mind's been this week because we're always talking about you know last month was having a perfect brightness of hope. And that goes to what's your foundation and what is your hope? My hope is to be with God in the end. Mm-hmm. My, my, my hope is to, to be saved by a creator who's mighty to save. And that mightiness has to include the fact that he's able to overcome my sinful nature and entice me to the point that I'm, I'm, I want to respond. I'm willing to respond. I'm trying to respond. And through my best efforts, through my choices, I hope that he takes me the rest of the way. And this, this picture of him, um, when you when you rely on it and meditate on it in your prayer time, and maybe that's a great image to focus on when you come to God, that Father running out to meet you and put a robe on you, uh, how much he wants to do that and how joyful he'll be when we come to him. Amen. Well, you got anything else, brother? No, I think you better start the music, buddy. But I do remember my wife gave me this blue robe with red polka dots on it when we were early married. And I hope when Jesus gives us robes, I get another one just like that. I'll need, I'll need the next size up, though. But it's all right. <laughs> but just, hey, you picture this, walking each other home, wearing these cool polka dot robes, huh? <laughs> all, right. all right. Until next time. See ya. See ya.